As you know, we started a, uh, a new subject matter this month, and that subject is a good neighbor. And what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Uh, you know, maybe it looks a little bit Christ- different for Christians than it does for other neighbors. You know who's voted the best neighbors? Mormons. I think we should fix that. Um, but anyway, that was for the second service only. Um, so, um, so yeah, so what, is it, what does it look different? How does it look different to be um, a good neighbor? And how specifically does it relate to evangelism? What, what do we do in evangelism to be a good neighbor? And I, um, the definition of evangelism uh, that I found, there's a bunch of them, the one that I found that I like is sharing Jesus Christ with people who do not yet know him. Evangelism is sharing Jesus Christ with people who do not yet know him. And that is our charge, and that is the subject for today. And I also want to relate it to being a good neighbor. Uh, think about you live in your neighborhood. I'm sure you do. I, li- I don't live in the neighborhood. I live in the woods, so I don't have to do this. But uh, you live in a neighborhood, and your neighbor is, is your, a great neighbor, just by all accounts, just a phenomenal neighbor. And, uh, and you, you know, y'all are good to each other. When, when they go on vacation, you watch their stuff and make sure their house doesn't flood and all those things, and they do likewise uh, when you're on vacation. And then, you know, after many years of good friendship and good neighborness, um, you, the, the, your neighbor gets the horrible news that they're diagnosed with cancer. And then you swoop in like a good neighbor and you go in and you try to ease their burden as much as possible. You mow their grass, you coordinate food deliveries with people in the neighborhood. Um, you know, you walk their dog, you have groceries delivered, you do literally everything you can think of to do in order to ease this person's burden. This is a real question, so I need a response. Are you being a good neighbor? Yes. That was not a trick question, seriously. Um, so yes, you're being a good neighbor, an awesome neighbor as a matter of fact. But let me just read. Let me just add one little thing. Your neighbor gets cancer, your awesome friend neighbor. They get cancer, and you do all those same things. You, have, you schedule food deliveries. You organize that. You mow their grass. You walk their dog. You do everything you can so they can focus on their treatment and their family, and you do that for a long period of time, except this time, the entire time, you've had the cure for cancer. Are you a good neighbor? No. Well, that's what we have, and that's what we are charged with. We are charged with delivering the cure for the world's most deadly disease, Uh, for the world's most harmful thing that has on humanity, and that is, of course, sin, which results in death, and everywhere in between is, is heartbreak and heartache the entire time, and we have been charged with delivering the cure for this disease, and that is what evangelism is, and that is different than being just a good neighbor and a neighbor that loves Jesus. Um, speaking of Jesus, he said, In Mark 16, 15 and 16, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then in Matthew 28, also the Great Commission, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, Before we get going too much further, let us pray. Um, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. Father, that you have made a way for us to be restored to you, and that is the greatest gift, Lord. But too much of this world doesn't know that. Too much of this world has not come into relationship with you, Lord. So we just ask, Father, that those that you would you would fill us up today, Lord, that you would charge us in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds to go out and be a good neighbor 
but a good neighbor that also has the disease, the, the cure for the greatest disease in humanity, Lord. Father, I just ask that you would fill us up today, that you would pour out your grace on us and that we would know you and love you more, a little bit more at the end of this hour. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I have a general philosophy and kind of, I have the, the privilege of overseeing a business. And uh, so, you know, the way I, I oversee the business and I have a particular, you know, I've developed sort of my leadership style over the years. And I have, I call this uh, three keys to effective anything. Now, normally I'm talking about business when I do that, but if you, but this is something that, I, that, that I've developed. I mean, I've stolen it all. I didn't come up with anything, but I, I've developed this by other people's um, genius, and it's why, who, and how. Um, so, if, you, if too often we approach we approach issues or, or challenges or problems or whatever in the wrong manner. Sometimes we just go crazy and we start trying to figure out how to fix things or what we're going to do or all those things. But um, several years ago, there's a Simon Sinek wrote a book called Starts with Why. It's a business book. I highly recommend it. Um, but basically, the, the focus of that book is, um, you know, you need to know your why. It's not what you're doing, but why you do it. It's not where you're going to do something, but why you do it. Because you know if you, if you work or you run a business or you have a, a house or, or anything, most of our things are mundane and somewhat tedious and, and repeated and, and really not all that exciting. But if you have a why that drives you, if you have some great vision and some great hope, then, then all those things just look like the, the accumulation of stuff that has to be done to achieve that vision. And so why is really critical. I'd encourage you that you read it, but if you really want to take a shortcut, Simon Sinek has a TED Talk. It's phenomenal, so you can skip all the reading. Uh, so go with there. And the next question, this is something that I really actually did struggle with because I'm a real like doer. I want to go fix stuff. And so if there's a problem at work or a problem here or a challenge, whatever, and I try to fix it, and I'm not the best person to fix it. And so what I've started doing now um, is asking who, not how. Who is the best person that can fix this? Who is the right person for this job? Not how am I going to do it because I already figured out I can't do it. I need somebody else to do it. So another great book called Who, Not How um, that I would recommend. And then finally, a book we're going to talk about, we're going to breeze over it a little bit, it's the Bible. Um, not really. The, the great thing about the Bible and the difference in the Bible and these other books is that the Bible answers all of those questions, um, that the Bible has the solution and the source. It is our why. We should, we should know our why. So I have my boss, I, I don't have to worry, he doesn't have to worry about me, he also attends this church, he doesn't have to worry about me not working hard because, yeah, he's my boss, but God has called me to work hard. God has called me to do great things and to, and to do the best that I can and to, um, in everything that I do in word or in deed, do it as unto the Lord. And so he doesn't have to worry about that because I'm not really working for him. I am, he signs my checks. But I'm, I'm really diving in and doing, um, you know, I'm gonna do my best anyway. So I think one thing that we do, we're gonna start with Why? Uh, why evangelism? And I think too often we just kind of breeze over the why of evangelism. Too often we're just like, well, of course, uh, of course we're going to evangelize. Look, here's some good reasons. Saving people from hell. How about that? We don't want people to go to hell. We don't want our loved ones to go to hell. We don't want our families to go to hell. We don't want our friends and our coworkers. We don't want people to go to hell. We want them to spend eternity in the presence of God with us. And that is one of our, or our probably our primary motivator, uh, just if, if somebody just asked us. Uh, why would you do this? And it's a pretty good reason. I put it at the top of the list. Uh, the next one would be, well, man, this person is just miserable. 
And so I just, if they could just know Jesus, they would have some joy and some hope and some peace that they have never known and never understood before. And so I just want them to be able to find the peace that I know only, that only comes from knowing Jesus. Next one, slightly less spiritual, but we're like, this person is just an idiot. They cannot find a good decision in a room full of good decisions. They just can't do it. And I know that if they can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, if they can enter into a relationship with God, attend church, get around good people, then we're going to fix some crap in their life. And that's, that's simply, that's a motivator for us. Some of us, just my gifting. Dave talked about it a minute ago. Gift, uh, the gift of evangelism is a gift that God gives us that some of us have more naturally, and it's, and it's part of us. We almost were compelled to evangelize. We can't stop if we, if we try to. Um, other one's the Great Commission. <clears throat> we just read the Great Commission, two, of, two examples, and, you know, Jesus says go and do this thing. So we should do that. And then the other one is sharing the gospel actually fills me up that if you are, if you are concerned about somebody's eternity, the small things, the daily things in life seem less challenging. For instance, Charles Spurgeon said, "For um, get love for the souls of men, then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or the crotchets of a family and the little disturbances that John and Mary make from their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries if you concern yourself about the souls of men. Get your soul full of great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon probably knew better than anyone. He actually suffered from pretty severe depression his entire life. And so he knew the one thing that could overcome this, this mental and emotional thing that had him seized would be the concerns of the souls of men because that outweighs anything else that we can do, any um, grievance. My nephew asked me if it's okay if he's sad if his dog dies after the first service. So I, I think it is, but uh, it just should pale in comparison um, to the other things. Um, so any one of these reasons by themselves are good reasons. They're great motivators. So yeah, we don't want people to go to hell. We want to fix the crap. We want them to find joy and peace and hope and all of these things. And those are all great motivators, but they're not necessarily the motivator. And when I read scripture, I don't see that they are the why. They're not our why. Last week, I, I teach the class going deeper here. Um, I don't really teach. I just kind of wrangle the thoughts of people um, and my own. But last so I said, hey, I got to preach next week. I'm going to get some free, some free input here from, uh, from people. And so I asked just a generic question about evangelism and everybody had some awesome feedback and, and it was great. But Nancy Long said it best. She said, evangelism and salvation is about relationship. The thing that drives us and that should drive us is that we are in relationship with the God of this universe, the creator of all things, and we, are, and, and, we, and we were broken. It was falling apart. We were separated, and yet God made a way through his son Jesus and the cross of Christ and his resurrection that we could be joined with him, that we could be brought back into relationship with him, and that is exactly what should motivate us to see that our friends are saved. Actually, all those other things, those are overflows of being in relationship with God. Not going to hell. I do, I, is, I do like that one. It's a good one. Um, but, but that's simply an overflow of God's grace, of being in his relation. It's just, the, it's just the stuff that splashes around when you're near his goodness and you're in relationship with him. That is the thing that drives us and should motivate us. That is our why. Um. 
In, in 1 Timothy, uh, it says in 2, 3, and 4, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the saving knowledge of the truth. And the truth is, is that God has got, done an awful lot. He allowed his son to suffer, die, and even death on a cross so that we could be restored to him. And so that is the purpose. That is the reason. That is the beauty of this thing. Not going to hell is a bonus. Having peace and joy and hope and all those things are a bonus. It is that we get to be in relationship with God. And so that should naturally overflow because he just said in Second Timothy or First Timothy that he desires that all men to be saved. So this includes your neighbors and your friends and your family and your frenemies. I don't know what that is. Um, and, your, and even your enemies that all that all people uh, would be saved. I think too often we wrongly think that we are being saved from hell. But the truth is we're being saved to God. And that is the greatest part of this thing. And that should, should burn within us that our friends, our neighbors, um, are also uh, get to be in relationship. That is our why, why we do this. The next one is... Um, is how. Now, normally at work, sometimes how's the hardest thing you can come up with. Like if you're doing a business or you have a particular task or you're, or you're doing one thing and, and, and you know, just that right person, just the right person is potentially the hardest and most important decision you can make when, it, when I like business or work or any real task. Um, but in this particular case, it's the easiest part. It's you. The who is you? It's always you. There's never, oh, well, this person's better than me. Yeah, you're probably right. They are better than you. But it's still you. You're like, well, this person's been doing it so much longer. Right again. It's still you. It's always you. I don't have any more slides for who because it's you. Um, And me too. Don't think I'm like (laughs) releasing myself. But that is what it is, is that we are all, it is always us. It is always you. Um, that have been charged with this, that have been required to go and share the good news of Jesus. Now, the next one is how. Now, this one is a little bit harder. I'm not going to lie because there's so many ways and you don't even know what's going to work and, what, and what's not going to work. Um, there's, there's so many different, you know, I grew up in the Baptist church and we had evangelism, evangelism explosion and, and, uh, and Roman road to salvation and, and all these things and all these tools to help us, to help us become better evangelists. And, and you know, those are awesome and those are great tools. But I ain't going to lie, I never, never knocked one out of the park with the Roman road. Uh, you know, but it is, but it is a great tool for us to use. <clears throat> but the and, you, and so another thing is, like I'm sure this has happened to some of you if you've been in the church a long time. You've got somebody you're pouring into them, you're you're praying for them, you're inviting them over for dinner, you're spending crazy money on them, you're doing all this stuff to try to compel them to win them so that they might be saved. And nothing. And then some new person comes over and shares with them. And like in 10 minutes, the person's like, everything is uncovered. The scales are off their eyes. Now they understand Jesus in a way that they never have. And I'm like, I've been saying that for 10 years. I've spent 20 grand on you. I mean, come on. And so, so you don't know what's going to work. I remember in 2008, uh, my wife and I, we had the privilege of going to Ukraine to help with the Koinonia ministry, the Strombecks found. And they had a... Uh, they had a, it was called Koinonia, but they had a, a, a 
thing where all the pastors would come together, a pastor's conference, and they would bring their families because they didn't really have a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, but they would all come and they would bring their families and then we taught. How intimidating is that? Let's go to Ukraine that was formerly subjugated by the Soviet Union and communism and they rose up out of there, established churches and built these great churches. Now, you're a window installer. Why don't you go tell them how to, how to do this? And so... So yeah, so we did it, and it was fun, and it was great, and things were awesome. And there was one particular family there. Um, it was a pastor, and his, his whole family came, and his son was not interested. He was not only not interested in that weekend, he wasn't particularly interested in the faith. He had grown up. His dad was a pastor. Um, they went to church. They did all these things. And, you know, I mean, the teaching was good. The worship was good, and, you know, nothing with this kid. And so... Uh, Dave Dunbar was there with us, if you remember him. Um, and he said, we're going to go play soccer, but we've got to clean the field up. And the field was just covered with trash. I mean, it was probably some major health problem for us if, if anything happened. But he said, we're going to clean this field up. And I'm telling you, they had recently become out, come out of communism, and they didn't have that, that pride in ownership and that pride in property um, like, like we are privileged to have here in America. Um, but they, they almost didn't even get it. Like, we're going to clean up? Can't we just play around all the shards of metal and bomb residue? Um, but we did. We cleaned it up, and we went out there, and we piled garbage in the corner. There was literally a giant pile of garbage uh, in bags of garbage before we could play soccer. And we played soccer. It was a great game. I don't remember who won. But, um, but that night, this kid, somehow, us cleaning up that field resonated within his mind and God revealed mysteries to him and, and, and he connected all the dots somehow and somehow that evening he accepted Christ as Savior because we cleaned up a field. And I would have never have written that down in an evangelism manual. But sometimes you don't know what is going to work or what God is going to do. So, there are some with the gift of evangelism and walking up to a perfect stranger and sharing Christ seems almost as natural as breathing. Uh, there are others that, you know, somebody's in, in your workplace and they share a problem with you or a suffer and a pain that they're going through and you just listen, let's lay hands on them here in the middle of the break room and pray for them and, and uh, you know, get oil out of the cabinet and anoint them and it doesn't even, it just seems normal to you. Uh, those things just seem absolutely normal. Then there are other people that engaging a person or people or maybe even an entire crowd in some sort of apologetic defense of the faith that will cleverly lead them to set their eyes upon Jesus sounds like the best time of your life. And there are some of us here having a slight anxiety attack just hearing about that stuff because those things are terrifying. Those things are challenging. They are very hard um, to do. And yet we never know exactly what God is going to do or what's going to work. I thought we'd take, take a pretty good example um, and, and see what Jesus, how Jesus would deal with something like this. John three sixteen through 18 said, For God, you're probably somewhat familiar with this, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Um, that's pretty good. That's pretty good stuff. Um, but I don't actually want to talk about the content of this verse too much. I really want to talk about the context of this verse. This is Jesus meeting with a Pharisee in the cover of darkness because 
because the Pharisees are enemies of Jesus. They're trying to, trying to stop his ministry and his teaching, trying to, trying to destroy him, and eventually they, they succeed. But Nicodemus was compelled by Jesus' teaching. He was compelled by um, the miracles that he heard about, and he was compelled by his love and his compassion on just normal folks. And so Jesus met with him in the cover of darkness, hidden, and told him, and I don't know if you remember, but he, he starts with, uh, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I have no idea what that means. And Jesus talks to him about it. And he talks him through it, what it means to be born again and what it means. And then we get here, John three sixteen through 18. He shares literally the greatest mystery and miracle in the universe. He hadn't even shared this with his disciples yet. He hadn't gone into this level of detail with his 12 closest people. And yet he meets one guy in the cover of darkness. Um, so that guy won't get found out in order that this guy might be saved. That's awesome. Paul said, I have become all things to all men in the hopes that a few might be saved. Well, Jesus was right here doing that one guy. And we actually don't know what exactly happened with Nicodemus. Um, on the chosen, he decided not to do it and left a bag of money by, the, uh, by their thing. But, but we don't know what happened. And yet Jesus did all of this. And I think that is something that we can take away, that we can, we can do whatever it takes um, do all things so that somebody, someone might be saved. There's a couple things that Jesus said that are, that are challenging. Uh, actually, all of them are, but one is particularly challenging. I don't think I agree with him on it. He says, greater works ye shall do or you will do than he did. And I'm like, eh, not so far. Um, you know, and so that, that's a real challenge for me. I don't, I don't understand it, and yet I think that there is something that we can do because we have this opportunity to meet many Nicodemuses or many people, and we have this opportunity and this capacity to love because of what he has placed within us um, to do so. There was a man named Fred, and uh, he, lived, he lived in a neighborhood and he was known as kind of the grumpy guy in the neighborhood. I don't know if you live in a neighborhood, but they usually have at least one of these guys. He was, he was the guy that if the kids ran across his lawn, he'd be like, get off my lawn, you meddling kids. Um, you know, and he was just grumpy. He wasn't like evil. He didn't do evil things. He was just not very pleasant, and he wasn't very kind. On the other hand, he had a wife named Anne, and she was very kind, a lovely lady. And she would often apologize for his, his uh, character and his the way he behaved sometimes. Um, but nevertheless, that's, this, is the way, this is the way their life was. And then one day, Fred got a new neighbor. Uh, this guy named Charlie moved in, and Charlie, uh, you know, Charlie was the antithesis of Fred. He was exactly the opposite. He was kind. He was funny. He, was, he, he loved people. He loved if kids ran across his lawn. He loved all of these things, and he would see Fred in the morning, and he would say, good morning, Fred, with a big smile, and Fred would give him the half-hearted, grunted hello uh, you know, just so people didn't think he was a total psycho. But none, none of that was in there. And so, but, you know, Charlie continued to do this in his life, continued to be kind and to be friendly and, um, you know, and, and built a better relationship. Uh, he, his family built a better relationship with Anne and all these things. And he was probably, uh, you know, also Fred would notice that on Sunday mornings, Charlie would come out and he would have his whole family and they'd be dressed maybe a little bit nicer than they were during the week. And and they rode off in their car. Of course, he knew that they were going to church, <clears throat> uh, you know, of which he had no interest. And, um, you know, this happened, this continued, and, and they, it became as close to a neighborhood friend that Fred could ever imagine. But they were still not friends. They were more like 
friendly acquaintances. But then one day, Anne got the horrible news um, that she was diagnosed with cancer. And this just wrecked Fred. Fred was destroyed. He, uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't imagine this. He couldn't, couldn't deal with it. And it was overwhelming getting her to treatments and making sure she was doing all the things she had to do at home. And it was just overwhelming for him. Well, Charlie flew in, swept in like the Christian neighbor hero and did all the things that I mentioned earlier. He, uh, he um, you know, organized food and stuff for them in the, in the neighborhood. And he, uh, you know, even from his church, people didn't even know Fred, um, put, put in food together. They would walk his dog. Fred got up one Saturday morning to mow his grass and Charlie had already done it. And just, just as wonderful as he could be. And then Charlie also boldly would say to him, I am praying for you. I'm praying for you, Fred, that you would have more strength than you ever thought you could. And I'm praying that your wife, Anne, will be healed, that she will experience a miracle, and that it will be wonderful. Well, it wasn't wonderful. Um, Anne did eventually die of cancer, and, um, and, and Fred was just destroyed. His life was, was, as far as he knew it was over, the only, the most wonderful thing in his life, of course, uh, was gone, and he didn't know how to respond, started slipping into depression. Well, Charlie... And his family slipped it into high gear. They, uh, they started, they doubled down. Even other people forgot, you know, to send food and those kind of things. He and his family always did, and, but Fred was really struggling. So after a couple of months, you know, um, Charlie said to Fred, Hey, Fred, you want to you wanna come to church with me and my family? And Fred really had never had much interest in that. And so he said, No, I don't, I don't think so. And Charlie said, Well, do you want to come to dinner? And Fred did accept that. So he would come to dinner. And the kids were being total goofballs, and, and he actually smiled for the first time that he could remember since Anne had passed away. Um, and so that repeated itself over and over, and, and, and Charlie would say, hey, Fred, do you want to go to church with me and my family? And he would say, no. He said, what, do you want to come to dinner? And he would say, yes. And they would have dinner, and they, they became pretty close. And then so finally, this happened over and over again, and he never went. And finally, it was the spring, and Charlie went to Fred and said, hey, Fred, Sunday's Easter, I'm pretty sure you have to go to church. I think it's a rule. Um, and so finally, Fred did relent. And he said, I'll go to church with you. And he got there that day. And whatever reason, it was the best Sunday this pastor had ever had. He was knocking it out of the park. He was explaining the, you know, he was explaining uh, sin and death. And he explained it Jesus in a way that, that Fred, Fred hadn't heard too much, but he had never Never heard it this way, and he just it was awesome. He explained how Jesus' death and burial and resurrection was all the beautiful and wonderful symbols of that and how God wants us to be restored to him, and it was incredible. And at the end of that, the pastor said, if you would like to know Jesus, I'd like you to come down. Well, Fred started experiencing something he'd never had. His, his feet were trying to move without his permission. Um, his, his heart was, was being drawn up, and he had not consented to this at all. And finally he did. He got up and he walked down front and, um, and he comes to the pastor and the pastor said, do you want to know Jesus? And he said, um, I don't know too much about Jesus, but if he's anything like Charlie, I'd like to get to know him. And that is what it means. 
And that is what our people should be saying about us. That is evangelism every day and all day, that as we go out and we live this life, yeah, sure, you got to do the other things. Do the hard things. Push yourself. Pray for your people in the break room and go out and make yourself uncomfortable and ask some weird rake comfort questions. And whatever the things are that you do in order to entice and to compel people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, that is awesome. But the one thing that we can do all day and every day is love in a way that only we can. We're the only ones with the source of this love. We're the only ones that have the ability to do that, that we are filled with the knowledge as well as the Holy Spirit in order to do that. And that is what we should do. So the next time somebody comes down here and they say, I don't know much about Jesus, but if it's anything like Grayson, then I'd like to know him. If it's anything like Nick or Aubrey or Caleb, then I want to know. Um, that is what we should strive for. And that is the only way that we could ever do greater works than Jesus did was to, is to go out and live in love in this capacity that we are full of. If you'd stand with me, we will start to wrap things up. The hardest part of the hardest word in the Great Commission is go. It's also the shortest word in the Great Commission, but go is the hardest thing. Because if you take the first steps, if you go as Jesus commanded us to, then, then, then he's going to fill in most of the rest of the gaps, thankfully. But going is the hardest thing. And Paul said it a little bit differently in Romans 10. He said, how, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, our feet should be pretty beautiful. And some of us just don't know. We just forget that Jesus tells us to go. And what Paul said here is, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Well, consider yourself sent. Not by me, because I have pretty much zero authority to do so. But Jesus, the Savior of our souls, the one who did everything for us, um, told us to go. And then Paul, the greatest apostle of all times, also said the same thing. So I would just challenge you to, to go this week, to go and preach. Doesn't, it's not going to look like this. It's not going to look like what we might call preaching, but it is going and sharing. It might be mowing someone's grass or loving them in their time of heartache and pain. That is what it means to evangelize all day and every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have good news. Lord, that you have provided this good news that is above all other good news that changes literally the course of our lives and our hearts and our hopes. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to go. To go, Lord, so that our friends and our family and our neighbors can enter into relationship with you. So that they can come to the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. So that we can love and they can love in the only way, in only a way that you can allow us to do, Father. Father, I pray that if someone here has not has not yet entered into that relationship, Lord, I just pray that you would stir their hearts, Lord, that you would compel them, their feet like Fred's, 
in their very souls to take a step. Father, for the rest of us, Lord, I just ask that you would open many doors this week, Lord. Not that we would stumble into an accidental occasion where we might be able to share the gospel, Lord, but that every day and all day we were looking for an opportunity to share and to love. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace. Lord, we ask that you would draw us close to you so that we might draw others towards you in Jesus' name. Amen.